the greatest of all Irish sports. Ireland and its people have a rich history when it comes to sport. It has many heroes from hurler Christy Ring to Dublin legend Jimmy Keaveney. From the midfield maestro Liam Brady to rugby warrior Paul O'Connell. And from the determined running of Sonia Sullivan to the boxing craft of Steve Collins. For a small nation, we with a population of just over four and a half million have at times overachieved in some international sports. Reaching the quarter-final of the World Cup in 1990 is one of our greatest examples. Bear in mind this was a sport that lagged far behind the more traditionally popular domestic GA in terms of participation. To illustrate the achievement further, we can compare representation World Cups. Ireland has been in three World Cup final tournaments, while China, with its billion-plus population and vast resources, played in only one in 2002. The Irish love horse racing, boxing, golf and a host of other sports. But the Irish had a special affinity with sports that involved a ball of some sort. Hurling, football, rugby and soccer especially. However, the sport most cherished by the Irish above all contenders is not played with a ball at all. This adored sport isn't even well organised, yet its following is fanatical with millions of participants. It is a sport that contains no finishing line. Its participants are also its audience and the love of this game has been passed down faithfully from generation to generation. Not a day goes by without reference to this great sport of the Irish. It is spoken about in pubs, sport clubs, at work, even weddings and funerals. It is spoken about daily in the media. It makes a perpetual appearance as a backdrop to Irish-made movies in the past. I will be the first to be referenced and encoded into a storyboard for a movie yet to be made. Everyone has an opinion on it and there is a great equality within it. There are no league tables, no promotion battles or relegations. Women are as active and proficient within it as any man. Although not played by much of the very young, they soon are enrolled in this great pastime as they mature. Its prevalence is as quintessential as discussions about the weather. And as you may or may not know, we Irish are obsessed about talking about the weather to such an extent that it forms part of the greeting. Fine day, thank God. This is a sport that no one gets paid to play, yet everyone is a professional expert in it. And it transcends social classes as well as the generations of Zoomers to Boomers. It is not only a sport, but can be a fine crafted art too. Although many nations indulge in this great pastime, the Irish have a special dedication to it. What is this most effusive, omnipresent, captivating of sports? The answer. Scapegoating. We are singularly, amazingly articulate in the art and sport of scapegoating. What is a scapegoat? Well, a scapegoat is defined as a person who is blamed for the wrongdoings, mistakes or faults of others, especially for reasons of expediency. 
It is also known as a whipping boy, a victim, and Sally, fall guy, or a patsy. The term derives from a passage of the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, where a goat was sent into the wilderness after a Jewish chief priest had symbolically laid the sins of the people upon it. The term scapegoat connotes the opportunity to distort the truth and to seek to find an alternative but errant causer. A child who perhaps might steal a biscuit from the cookie jar may attempt to divert his inquiring parent away from the preteen's guilt by blaming it on his sibling, maybe even the dog or an invisible friend, in order to escape punishment. Moreover, it harbours a self-deceptive element through self-denied acceptance of responsibility for the wrongdoing. Therefore, it plays two roles. Exculpatory, to avoid the present censure and the future consequences that might follow and the inability to accept responsibility for the malbehaviour and the learning that may come from the event. The refusal to accept responsibility is likely to morph into an ingrained consequential maladaptive behaviour in the future, as a condition of the self-denial having not learnt any lessons from the event, as well as the consequences meted out for it. The two most prominent scapegoats that dominate the Irish landscape are number one, the British Empire, and number two, the Catholic Church. Let me be clear, to concentrate on the phenomenon of scapegoat is not an attempt by me to whitewash or exculpate any wrongdoing owed either to the British Empire or to the Catholic Church. However, I am merely attempting to make nationalists acquainted with an inconvenient truth, i.e. the seismic role the Irish played in their own demise in the past, but also to provide a warning against the creation of opportune scapegoats in the future to exonerate those Irish people from their own responsibilities that are now occurring in the present. The invasion of Ireland, as most nationalists know, occurred in 1169, when Richard de Clare, second Earl of Pembroke, also known as Strongbow, and a few of his knights were invited in by the deposed King of Leinster, Dermot MacMurrah. In 1167, MacMurrah was deprived of the Kingdom of Leinster by the High King of Ireland, Rory Ua Con Conver. MacMurrah came to an agreement with Richard de Clare, and in exchange for the Earl's assistance, the deposed Leinster King had offered to Strongbow his eldest daughter Aoife in marriage, as well as succession of his Leinster throne. Strongbow raised an army of 600 Irishmen and Welsh archers to assist him in reconquering Leinster. Meanwhile, Henry II of England became rather restless with the growth of the Earl's power, seeing the potential for ruin as the King of England had threatened to seize his lands, Pembroke sent his uncle, Hervé de Montmorency, to parley with the King on his behalf, to which was conveyed in return the King's terms, i.e. the return of Richard de Clare's lands in France, England and Wales, as well as leaving him in possession of the Irish lands. As long as Richard de Clare surrendered Dublin, Waterford and other fortresses to the English King. 
Henry's intervention was ultimately successful and both the Gaelic and Norman lords in the south and east of Ireland accepted his rule. The fact that a prominent Irish king, or rather Leinster to be more precise, and some of his subjects were willing to sell the country to a foreign warlord for his own self-interest is a common theme throughout Irish history. If you look at the list of Irish rebellions, each were undermined by some act of treachery, bribery or apathy. In 1534 you had the Silken Thomas Rebellion, promoted by the Fitzgeralds of Kildare. In 1569-73 you had the First Desmond Rebellion by the Fitzgeralds of Desmond and their allied clans. In 1579-83 you had the Second Desmond Rebellion. In 1593-1603 you had the Nine Years' War promoted by Hugh O'Neill, Hugh O'Donnell and their allied clans. In 1608 you had the O'Doherty's Rebellion, perpetrated by Sir, C- Sir Cahar O'Doherty. 1641 came the Irish Rebellion under the leadership of Phelim O'Neill, Rory O'Moore, Conor Maguire and Hugh Og McMahon. In 1642-52, to 52, the Irish Confederate Wars were fought. In 1689 to 91, you had the Williamite Wars. This was perpetrated between the Jacobites under James II of England against King William of Orange. In 1798, you had the Irish Rebellion of 1798, perpetrated by the Society of United Irishmen. In 1799 to 1803, you had Michael Dwyer's guerrilla campaign. In 1800, the Newfoundland colony, there was also a United Irishmen uprising. 1803, the Irish Rebellion of the United Irishmen. 1804, the Castle Hill Rebellion, again by the United Irishmen. 1848, the Young Irelander Rebellion. In 1867, you had a Fenian Rising. In 1881-85, the Fenian Dynamite Campaign. In 1882-83, you had the Invincibles assassinations. And then, in 1916, the Irish Easter Rising. All the aforementioned rebellions failed due to four common factors. Bad planning, distinct apathy by the majority of Irish men and women, treachery, bribery, and a sprinkling of bad luck. The worst of the four being apathy and treachery. We need not remind any nationalists that when the men of 1916 were being dragged to incarceration after their failed but heroic rising, they were pelted with rotten vegetables and spat at by ordinary Irish men and women, some of whom had relatives fighting for the British in the trenches and further afield during the Great War. Irish men and women who betrayed Ireland have been rewarded time and time again by the monarchs and parliaments of England, their agents and their champions. The 1798 rebellion offers some great examples of treason against the Irish nation. Historians have generally agreed that Dublin Castle emerged as victor in the intelligence wars of the 1790s. 
with high-placed spies, agents and informers within the ranks of the United Irishmen. This caused the British establishment to be well kept, or briefed rather, well briefed on what their opposition were doing and thus enabled them to take decisive countermeasures. James Jemmy Hope, the Antrim Weaver, United Irishman and long-time radical, confided to the analysts of the United Irishman or Madden in the 1840s that we were all beset by spies and informers. And on the basis of his researches, Madden himself concluded that every important proceeding of the United Irishman was known to the government. Unprincipled politicians, such as the members of the Irish Parliament, bribed by money and peerages to vote for the Act of Union in 1800. Sadlier and Kyo in the 1850s, and forgers like Richard Piggott in the 1880s, formed the litany of traitors that have beset our land and our hopes for self-determination. However, far, far more Irish men and Irish women than those who received direct payment from the enemy and not found in the annals of any history, were equally culpable. During the Irish War of Independence, the rebels consisted of a paltry 1,500 and 250 patriots, 15,000 from the IRA and 250 from the citizen army. These brave men fought a force in excess of 45,000 combatants loyal to the Crown, 20,000 regular British Army, 9,700 constabulary, many of whom, by the way, were Irish, 7,000 black and tans, 1,400 auxiliaries, and 4,000 Ulster specials, not to mention the vast resources available to the British Empire. But as Tom Barry famously quipped, one in 20,000 Irishmen once every hundred years joins the cause for Irish freedom. The vast of the Irish population did nothing. I needn't refer to the present treason being played out in front of us all by politicians of all the mainstream parties, including those laughably representing themselves as nationalist republicans, as well as a patently corrupted media machine and fifth-column NGOs whose ranks are replete with middle-class progressive traitors. These present-day traitors are the descendants of their ancestral informers or those who mocked and derided Irish rebels en route to prison, soon to be executed after a series of sham processes in the form of venal court-martials. The second great scapegoat enjoyed by the Irish is the Catholic Church. This scapegoat is so successful that even some nationalists partake in the performance. When Ireland's freedom was fought and died for, eventually resulting in a flawed treaty leading to independence for part of the island, the Irish men and women who had put their lives in the line had sought to exemplify their detachment from everything British, including a deference to a faith their forefathers had died protecting. Historians recount that the brave patriots of 1916 prayed the rosary before they went out on that Easter Monday morning. They prayed it as they sat on the roof of the GPO awaiting their fate. They prayed it when after their surrender in Moore Street they were corralled into the forecourt of the Rotunda Hospital. And as we have read from the accounts of Sean Houston's last hours, 
they prayed it in their cells as they prepared for death. The Dominican orders make this reference. In his recollections of that night, Father Albert OFM Cap tells how, at 1.30 on the morning of the 8th of May 1916, a military car called at the Capuchin Friary on Church Street in Dublin to collect two of the friars to go to Kilmainham to minister to the prisoners due for execution that Monday morning. He tells how he arrived in Houston's cell at around 2.30am and he found the young man kneeling beside a small table with his rosary beads in his hands. During the last quarter of an hour, he said, we knelt in the cell in complete darkness as the little piece of candle had burnt out. But no word of complaint passed his lips. His one thought was to prepare with all the fervour and earnestness of his soul to meet our divine saviour and his sweet virgin mother. We said together short acts of faith, hope, contrition and love. We prayed together to St. Patrick, St. Bridget, St. Cominkill and all the saints of Ireland. We said many times that beautiful prayer, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, I give you my heart and my soul. It was very rational in the spirit of patriotism to promote everything your enemy opposed. The established church in Ireland had been the Anglican Communion, established by Henry VIII. Protestantism had waged a war on Catholicism, most especially Irish Catholicism. So it was not irrational to conceive of a society that would put their identifiable faith to the forefront in opposition to a foreign faith and the rigours of foreign enforcement associated with that foreign faith. For example, the penal laws. However, the criticism, valid in part, is that the Catholic Church was given too much power to exert over the Irish secular state and, by extension, its newly liberated people. While influential people like de Valera did seek the approval of high-ranking Catholic clerics in the country, what is conveniently forgotten is that Ireland was a democracy and operated under principles of free elections with a secret ballot. If particular politicians and their parties chose openly or suggestively to curry the approval of Catholic hierarchs and tailored government policy in accord with that clerical advice, why then did the ordinary Irish people of Ireland continually vote through secret ballot for these politicians and parties time and time again? The Magdalen laundries etc. were not unique to Ireland or Catholic countries. Protestant Britain had Birdhurst Lodge run by Evangelical Missions of Hope, one for example in Croydon, or Clark's House run by the Skeen Moral Welfare Association, a Protestant charity. The fact of the matter was the values of the time were not particular to Catholic Ireland. They were west-wide. Yet the impression created by progressives and accepted by even some nationalists to this day was that it was wholly it was a wholly Catholic phenomenon. This is simply and inconveniently false for many. The Gardaí, the courts, social workers who operated during these puritanical times were working in accordance with the laws of the land, laws established by politicians in Dáil Éireann, 
legislators voted into Parliament by Irish people over and over again through democratically held elections that ensured privacy as to selection of candidate through the secret ballot system of voting. Quite simply, the Irish so-called puritanical moral system was one, not unique to Catholicism, nor Ireland, and two, such a system was supported by the Irish people in general through their successive choices during national elections. No one put a gun to any Irish person's head to vote in a particular way, nor was such a vote made in public. Even if it were argued that some form of coercion or undue influence was asserted, no one would know how one really voted because the vote was cast in secret. The opportunity for change was present multiple times, but the Irish chose not to accept it because they agreed, by and large, and in principle, with those laws of the land. The same excuse will not apply to present-day Irish men and Irish women who have an obligation and duty to know who they vote for and why, especially in this very well-informed age. It is one thing to vote for a candidate who then reneges on his election promises. There is not a whole lot a citizen can do about such corruption. But it is a whole other thing about voting for that same person or that party in subsequent elections knowing that such a candidate had deceived you. Fool me wrong, shame on you. Fool me wrong twice, shame on me. Frederick Kellner, a German citizen who opposed the Nazi regime, wrote of his experiences in his diary that undermines the narrative that the German people were unawares as to the deeds perpetrated in their name. Kellner's nephew published his uncle's diary in 2011 to expose the lie that ordinary German people did not or could not have known of events that occurred in their country under the Third Reich. I propose we document carefully now too the same injuries caused to our nation by our nation to act as a deposition against the potential of new convenient scapegoats in the future. Similarly, Irish people who will feign ignorance in the future for the evil deeds committed in their name today, for example, mass child slaughter, radical sexualization of the innocent, the abandonment of our elderly, the desecration of our faith and culture, the submission to LGBT fascism, or the continued supporting of politicians and parties, these charlatans that openly and in full view of the public, I might add, denounce national sovereignty even in the hallowed chambers of the doll itself, and perform incessant derelictions of national duty. Along with these, we add the perpetual funding of an immoral media through subscriptions and deference for information, or offers of encouragement to treasonous NGOs. These treasonous Irish would be afforded neither excuse or tolerance for their wholesale complicity in the ruination of our faith, culture and people. However, that is not to say that they will, if the climate dictates, enthusiastically attempt to seek to clothe themselves in such defences to avoid justified condemnation. The Irish, if anything, must be conceded, have a devout consistency in terms of their treachery. The accusation doesn't stop at the door of the communist or progressive, but straddles into the domain of some nationalists also. Those few who might look to their own specialised scapegoats to exonerate themselves from their own blameworthiness in the apathy or abject surrender to the enemies of our nation 
domestic and foreign. As with some nationalists that went before us, there is now, as before, many nationalists who talk a good game, I include myself here, but fail perpetually to stand up to do what is honourable and right for the greater good, for God and for nation. There are others within this so-called fraternity of patriots, too attached to their own personal agendas of self-aggrandizement that catapult self-interest over the interests of the cause they warrant to others, their grand submission, i.e. the interest of Ireland. Without genuine self-reflection to do what is best for our nation, no excuses will ever pardon their lust for narcissism if such egotism detracts from the national cause. On this note, I would ask all patriots to seek collegiality towards a shared love of country without needing to embrace each other in a singular affinity as distinct personalities who may or may never get along. However, I am almost certain that in the future, if the tide of emotion were to change in our direction, just as it did in the aftermath of the murderous executions of the Patriots of 1916, and that those present Irishmen and Irish women who maligned the Patriots of today were to come to raise the standard again in the future, they too, like all generations of the past, will seek to indemnify against their own treacherous past complicity. I have very little doubt that the favourite pastime in sport will be disinterred and resurrected in the form of a new unrecognised franchise to add to the pre-existing litany of sacred stereotypes, the British and the Catholic Church, all in an effort to shift responsibility away again from the true source of the habitual blame, the Irish themselves. But in the words of Oliver Goldsmith, every absurdity has a champion to defend it.